Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. Following a breakdown in in-person diplomatic exchanges during the height of the coronavirus pandemic, China and Europe have again stepped up their diplomatic activity, leading to various high-level meetings in the last months, like the visits of German Chancellor Olaf Scholz and European Council President Charles Michel to Beijing and Wang Yi's current visit to Europe. My name is Johannes Heller-Jonen to discuss the chances for a re-establishment of closer ties between China and the EU, with a special focus on the view from and the role of the Central and Eastern European member states. I'm joined by Katja Drinhausen, Head of Programme Politics and Society at Merix, and Alicia Pacholska, Policy Fellow at ECFR and former Futures Fellow at Merix. Katja and Alicia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Johannes. Happy to be here. Thanks, Johannes. Thanks for having us. Let us start with an assessment of where we stand in EU-China relations. What do we take from this flurry of exchanges? Are there changes in the way China and Europe approach each other? Yeah, that's a really um, important and fundamental question, Johannes. So, I mean, one thing what we're definitely seeing is changes in, in China's foreign policy, at least when it comes to both personnel and the messages that China is sending. Um, so, one, we have the former foreign minister Wang Yi, um, exchanged for Qing Gang as Wang Yi is moving up to a different position. Um, Qing Gang, on the other end, has ample experience as the former U.S. ambassador. Um, so he brings to the table quite a bit of knowledge about the dynamics and discussions, um, especially in the U.S.-aligned or U.S.-partnered West. Also, we have Fu Tsong as a new ambassador to the European Union, um, which comes after a longer gap where the position left, was left vacant and really provides an important and good opportunity for outreach. Um, we already see him um, engaging in a lot of high-level meetings, and with that came quite a clear change in tone from China's end. After relations took a downturn um, over the past two years, there's definitely hopes on the Chinese side um, that this new engagement will reset the tone for bilateral relations and also focus it back on topics and areas that are in China's interest. Um, what we can expect to see over the coming months as well is outreach via public diplomacy, for example, organizations and think tanks reaching out, delegations coming in on China. And um, while there are still a lot of issues in bilateral areas, this does provide an important opportunity after three years of um, more or less absence of opportunities for personal meeting and engagements. This provides a really good and important opportunity for direct conversations and, and picking up a lot of threads that were maybe left untended to uh, and relations that were left untended to over the past years. But the current re-engagement, of course, doesn't mean that all problems will just dissolve into thin air. Uh, we are really standing at a point where bilateral relations, um, not just between the EU and China, but also between many of its member states and China, um, are facing quite structural challenges and also a rethinking on the European side. Just looking at the example of Germany, the German government is working on a new China strategy um, that has a much stronger focus on issues in bilateral relations, on a values-driven foreign policy, on rebalancing supply chains and um, investment and trade relations. 
we also have new ethical supply chain legislation coming into effect in Germany, but also in the works in Europe, where human rights issues play a much stronger role, which is, as we know, a long-standing issue in bilateral relations. We currently also see a debate over research cooperation with China and, and the risk that it entails. So again, uh, a key issue of public debate. And last but not least, um, one of the most crucial issues in bilateral relations is China's relationship with Russia. Alisa, you worked a lot on the relationship between China and Russia. And I would like to hear your take on these developments and how they are perceived in Central and Eastern Europe but especially with a look at how the war in Ukraine has impacted this. Thanks, Johannes. That's a really crucial question and one that cannot be um, overlooked. So I think that the key takeaway is that uh, 2022 was the year when not only Poland, because me personally, I'm Polish, so I'm mostly talking from uh, from the perspective of Warsaw, but also many other central and European states, especially the Baltic states, started to perceive its relationship with China through the lens of Sino-Russian cooperation. So in a way, the war in Ukraine and Beijing's tacit approval for um, for the Russian invasion was a game changer. So I feel that there is no way back to business as usual, understood as, you know, this golden age of cooperation between China and the CEE region, best exemplified by uh, the BRI, the 16 plus one platform for cooperation, which is now 14 plus one. And it might actually go down to, to less members with countries such as Czechia potentially leaving um, the format. But uh, I think that uh, it's really important to highlight that uh, what some analysts uh, call pro-Russian neutrality in terms of the way China approaches the war in Ukraine is no neutrality in Central and Eastern Europe. If any country displays or supports uh, pro-Russian or Russia-friendly narratives, uh, be it in its diplomatic um, outreach or informal communication, this for most of the CEE countries translates into tacit approval for the aggression in Ukraine. So um, I think that uh, with Beijing situating itself as this indirect enabler of Russian aggression, its appeal uh, in the CEE region, its attractiveness, especially in Poland, uh, has significantly decreased. So um, this means that it will also impact long-term policymaking and policy considerations of Warsaw vis-à-vis uh, -vis Beijing. Uh, but also, um, I think that it's important to point out that there still exists some voices among political elites in the region who promote the idea of returning to more, uh, let's say, pragmatic approach towards cooperation with Poland, but they are rather marginal. And quite uh, it's quite symptomatic that, uh, for example, here in Poland, the most pro-Chinese political actors are simultaneously the most pro-Russian ones, which under current circumstances doesn't really bid well for their political future for obvious reasons, uh, as pro-Moscow voices are being marginalized uh, and are actually off the table at the moment. Just to sum it up, I think that Beijing might not be aware of the scale of changes that have taken place within the EU, but also especially in Central and Eastern Europe uh, over past year. 
So its current attempt to soften its image or re-establish friendly relationship with the EU will be significantly hindered by these changes and its ability, Beijing's ability to actually catch up and be able to uh, modify its foreign policy to be more uh, attractive for, for the CE region will depend on its ability to actually really reorient its approach towards Russia. And at the moment, I don't see any changes of this kind of um, substantial reorientation taking place. Alicia, as you just said, one of the aims of Chinese engagement in Europe is to soften its image. Could you go deeper into what other aims of China are in, in Europe? So I think that the overarching theme for China in the coming year is to re-establish business as usual. So it will happen potentially at both at bilateral level, but also at multilateral level. Um, bilaterally, for example, late last year, we've witnessed uh, French President Macron's uh, meeting with Xi Jinping in Bali, which probably heralds an upcoming visit of Macron in China which most probably will be used by Beijing to um, continue its divide and rule policy towards Europe by strengthening bilateral ties with the most important players such as Germany or France, uh, while at the same time trying to approach uh, different smaller players inside of the EU or regions multilaterally, for example, through the 16 plus one. But this will be very difficult as a task. First of all, if Beijing wants to reinvigorate 16 plus one, it will have to uh, push for a very, very difficult summit, which hasn't taken place for quite a while now, because none of the regional capitals is actually interested in hosting such an event for many reasons. But also it will try to probably bring back long discussed deals, such as the comprehensive agreement on investment, which uh, was debated upon for over seven years and then it was officially concluded but it wasn't ratified because of the Chinese sanctions in March 2020. So uh, this will be a very difficult task to achieve and China will be trying to balance relationships with different European players but as I said before, given the scale of changes and this more assertive thinking about China in different European capitals, convincing the whole union that uh, business as usual is actually good for Europe will be very, very difficult. Beijing wants to return to business as usual. Katya, what are the communication strategies it employs to achieve that? I mean, if we look at statements from Chinese diplomats um, in, in recent months, um, there's quite a consistent um, pattern or, or message, uh, right? They're focusing on, on recovery of relations from a low point. But when they communicate towards Europe, it's also quite clear that this hand that they're stretching out across uh, the divide at the moment, and that this offer of, of reapproachment is coupled with quite clear incentives and expectations towards Europe. Um, so if we look, for example, at Scholz's visit in Beijing, at Scholz's visit, um, but also at, for example, the op-eds and, and messages at high level and changes at the start of Fuzong's tenure, um, there is a really strong focus on cooperation, meaning let's focus on common interest, focus on what's beneficial to both sides, uh, which is quite clearly trade and investment. And this is an interest that is also quite clearly coupled with re-evaluation of the comprehensive agreement and investment and getting that back on track. 
But this main message to get back to business as usual, and business as usual here is really to be understood uh, in the sense of economic relations. This is also coupled with appeals to be realistic, to accept differences, and to steer away from ideology, which is essentially a request to sideline human rights issues and other issues about, you know, European independence, autonomy, um, and so on from these bilateral relations and essentially to sideline issues that have emerged as key concerns and European policymaking towards China. So really what we have here is um, a, a dual strategy, right? On the one hand, uh, the usual carrots of economic cooperation and um, appeals to be realistic, to be pragmatic and move forward with relations that are quite focused on, on benefits from both sides, um, combined with admonishments um, such as those in Uken's recent op-ed, so the Chinese ambassador to Germany's op-ed uh, in the Handelsblatt, that reminded readers that any um, more ideology-driven policy, as he phrased it, so a policy-focused on human rights values, for example, on a strategic rebalancing of economic relations would worsen the relationship again and set it on a wrong course. And what we also see in Europe, in Germany, as well as in other countries, of course, is also a strong interest to return to better and less volatile relations with China. And the big question moving forward really is, will that last? This return to business as usual and this focus on bilateral relations raises the question of how China engages with existing divisions within the European Union. So first of all, I think that looking from the perspective of, of Central and Eastern Europe, again, the story of the 16 plus 1, 17 plus 1, whatever number there is, is a textbook example of, of China's divide and rule. But it's not necessarily a story of a master plan, you know, with Beijing approaching the region with very deep knowledge of the existing divisions here, for example, about the um, difficult historical legacies of Poland and Germany or other countries that were affected by the Second World War, but rather a story of China stepping into the region and being perceived by both local CEE political elites um, as an opportunity, but by Germany and the so-called old European Union as an intruder or an actor that is somehow changing the balance of relationships within the EU. So seen from the CEE region, Mm, the latest visit by Olaf Scholz to Beijing uh, was seen by many politicians and many commentators as a display of double standards. So especially given the fact uh, that the current uh, political atmosphere in Poland and the current government is uh, quite conservative, quite populist, the reapproachment of Germany and China has been seen as a display of double standards in a way that uh, the CEE region has been criticized for a very long time for strengthening its economic and political ties uh, with China, especially in the past decade. But uh, for German elites, the same kind of behavior uh, that is, you know, strengthening economic ties, investing, uh, strategic cooperation, it was an established, a well-established and a very legitimate practice. 
So from this perspective, the current government sees this bilateral uh, rapprochement between Germany and China as yet again a display of the self-proclaimed German leadership within the EU and kind of a proof of Berlin's quote-unquote hegemonic aspirations uh, within the European Union. So again, this is all about the dynamics of Polish-German relationships in a historical perspective. And China might not have been aware of that, but these elements are still very much on the ground and they do have an impact on the way CE countries position themselves vis-a-vis China. So it's important to bear it in mind when thinking about this broader dynamics of European policymaking towards Beijing. Alicia mentioned before a more assertive thinking in Europe on, on China. And, and Katja, you talked about the Chinese communication strategy when approaching Europe. Do you expect a return to, to like the very strong um, opinionated positions of Chinese diplomats, like in the height of the Wolf Warriors uh, diplomatic times? Or are we seeing a change there? And what kind of indicators do we look at when assessing the Chinese activities in Europe? A lot of media attention has been focused on the fact that Zhao Lijian, um, as a prototype of China's wolf warriors, has been moved into another position and essentially um, at least highlined or demoted, depending on interpretation. Uh, but I think it's important not to forget that, you know, the, the strong assertive voices on the Chinese side, or in some cases actually acer- acerbic voices, um, were the foundation of many a career uh, and many a diplomatic career in recent years. But despite a change of tone, at least for now, I think it's important to also understand that the core ambition is still there. Um, The goal on China's both foreign policy, but also public diplomacy and and broader um, influencing efforts is really to create a positive public opinion environment for China to pursue its interests abroad. And these interests are quite clearly focused on economic cooperation, um, ensuring China's scientific progress, um, defending China's territorial claims, and also more broadly establishing its political values and views and red lines abroad. Um, and that, you know, that ambition is still there, that hasn't gone away. Also, keep in mind that, um, as Xi Jinping has stated on multiple occasions, China will not be scolded anymore. So this has become also quite a fundamental tenet of how China communicates abroad. And while there might be a temporary cool down of rhetorics during the current reshuffling, and that might also be related to China's focus on domestic issues right now um, due to quite pressing um, social policy concerns in relation to the COVID epidemic, that doesn't necessarily mean that it won't return to a more apologetic enforcement of its interests abroad. As Europe considers if it should, you know, re-engage with China and how to do that well, I think it's really important to keep in mind that at the end of the day, deeds are much more important than words. So what we should look out for in Europe is for one, the end of China's narrative aid to Russia. So, you know, is there just signaling towards Europe that the whole partnership with Russia was a big misunderstanding and essentially a misinterpretation by European actors? And really uh, instead look at what Chinese policymakers and state media are saying. Are they continuing to launder 
Russian viewpoints and statements and essentially providing indirect support to Russia? Or is there a real willingness to engage in, um, in, in multilateral negotiations with Russia and pressure it to change course? Um, so that will be a, an important area to watch. Secondly, it's really important to see if the less belligerent tone will last, especially as European countries might, you know, act in ways that are not aligned with China's interests and goals. How will Beijing react to, um, be it, you know, member state delegations to Taiwan or new human rights focused action and legislation that essentially targets the heart of Beijing's core interests and concerns that it wants to uh, defend and protect abroad. You know, in that case, will they remain calm and pragmatic themselves or will they turn up the full volume on their wolf warrior messaging again? Alicia, do you want to add anything to that? Drawing back on what Katya has just mentioned, I think that um, all these points were extremely important. So it's very, very crucial to look at what China is saying and what it's doing. And I think that we have to look for these weak points of strategic importance as uh, a litmus paper or a litmus test of what's the actual intention of Beijing in terms of its long-term goals to be achieved uh, in its relationship with Europe. So, for example, I think that it's very, very important to not only look at foreign policy initiatives, but also at the domestic developments uh, within within China. Because, for example, if you look at things such as uh, industrial policy or uh, dual circulation strategy, um, it's very clear that uh, the domestic goals of Chinese economy or in general the Chinese system at the moment are not in line with what the EU is trying to pursue. So, um, in this case, I think that it's very important to uh, problematize the debate uh, within the European Union on the implications of Chinese domestic policymaking on its long-term interests to really raise awareness that these things are very tightly related and it also has implications for China's uh, international communications because, of course, China will be trying to push this more positive um, coverage of its own efforts, trying to convince the outside world that, you know, it's... Uh, liberalizing its economy, is uh, welcoming back foreign investments. But we have to still remember and bear in mind what exact scope of these investments is now welcomed in China. What's the scope of debate we can engage in with Chinese intellectuals? So all these elements are very important if we want to really create a level playing field, which is the ultimate goal. And it has been the ultimate goal of, of uh, Brussels, of Europe, of the whole European community, in its relations with China. And I don't see any changes of this fundamental shift happening in Beijing. Actually, I think it's it's the opposite. We're heading towards more closeness and more, um, you know, limitations in terms of actual scope of cooperation. Talking of the possible scope of, of cooperation, uh, maybe as a, as a final question, I would be interested to hear from the two of you, what in your view a fruitful relationship with Beijing uh, from Europe could look like and, and maybe what the prospects are to achieve this? Maybe I can start by saying not what that would look like, but what I think a crucial precondition for moving into that direction is, um, because I do think that 
not just due to the COVID pandemic and, and travel restrictions, but also due to the um, closing of, of spaces for engagement and, and discussion. We are currently in a place where there are quite decoupled perceptions or even realities, both in Beijing, but also in, in Brussels and across European capitals. What we see on the Chinese side is a strong focus on bringing the relationship back on a positive track. But also, if you look at analysis by Chinese scholars, public intellectuals, there seem to be less awareness of how deep the shift is in Europe when it comes to the perception and the strategies that are seen as necessary to engage and deal with a re-emergent China. So the first thing on both sides, um, I think, is to be very clear about both the ambitions and the fundamental interests and red lines of the other side. Beijing might to some extent underestimate the tectonic shift that is underway in European China policy and perception of China, whereas in Europe, too, there might be um, a tendency to, you know, engage in wishful thinking and hope that the current uh, shift towards a more positive tone is an indicator of a deeper shift of behavior in Beijing that will make it a lot easier to engage and, and reduce topics and areas of friction. So I guess on both ends, it's really about one, re-engaging in exchanges, but also being very clear about what can and cannot be done. I think that one of the preconditions for any kind of productive relationship with China would be initially to bring all the EU countries to be on the same page when it comes to their respective understanding of what they want from China and to uh, raise the awareness of China's long-term policy goals in its relationship with the EU. So I think here we need much more coordination at the level of individual nation states uh, and possibly some initiatives to bring closer both the communities of experts, but also of policymakers to actually have an in-depth facts-based debate about China within Europe. And um, we've been talking about the German strategy on China, which is still being developed. Uh, and I think it's a great place to start, but all European Union member states should think of developing this kind of a strategy. It's, I think, it's like a precondition to having an informed debate at the EU level to a certain degree when it comes to having a coherent approach towards Beijing. But again, I might be ending on a negative note here. I don't think we are really uh, heading very fast towards that direction. But there are indicators that the attitude of different EU member states is becoming more realistic and more focused on redirecting their policies towards a more assertive approach towards China. But having established that, sorry to, to drive on the point, when we have achieved like a more uh, unified European or like at least a informed discussion on the European level, what do you think a relationship with China could look like? What is left after a lot of things have been like cut down and, and removed from, from the realm of possibilities? Well, I think that at this point, especially again, speaking from the perspective of Central and Eastern Europe, if China doesn't genuinely 
change its approach towards uh, tacitly supporting Russia when it comes to the war in Ukraine, there is not much space for any kind of fruitful relationship because this decoupling from politics and economy, I don't think it works anymore among political elites. And that's something really important. And I'm not sure whether Beijing has actually realized that what the importance of of the war in Ukraine is and how much it is still perceived as an existential threat for many countries within European Union. That was a very interesting conversation. And I thank you, Alicia and Katja, very much for your time and your insights. Thank you, Hannes, for having us. And it was a pleasure to chat both with you and Alicia about this really important topic um, and a key space to watch in the coming month. Thanks so much to both of you. I really enjoyed our conversation. And thank you all for listening. Until next time, goodbye. You have been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merricks.org.